Postwave. This is Eric, and I'm here with Trevor. And today we're talking about a conversation, a debate recorded between none other than Jordan Peterson and Matt Dillahunty. Uh, now, Trevor, were you familiar with Matt Dillahunty before this? I definitely heard the name, and I'd probably heard him talk before, but I, I, I don't think I'd ever like connected the name with the with the person like I if you asked me before I watched what 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 he what he did like I would have no idea Mm -hmm. did you know about his show the atheist experience I think I had probably heard of it but yeah I I couldn't you know (laughs) Uh I couldn't tell you anything about it Did, did you watch any any of it yeah I've been watching it on and off for a few years actually oh really I yeah I I really uh that's what that that's why how I found this debate uh but yeah, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. When I enjoy it, I really enjoy it. It's something very gratifying about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what the show is is just that people call in trying to prove that there's a god, and then he just like completely dismantles every attempt at, at a logical argument that they make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's great. He's like really, really well uh researched he knows his shit he used to be a fundamentalist christian and right i think that's part that's probably the main drive why why he cares about it so much why he's made this his life's work right i think he says in the debate that he's willing to to hang up on people if they just are you know <laughs> piss them off or oh whatever. yeah it happens it all like the time yeah <laughs> and like i understand why watching the show because you know a lot of the time the people who call in they'll, you know, make some sort of logical fallacy and Matt will say like, Hey, look, you, that doesn't, that doesn't track. And then they'll like try to hedge and jump ship and, uh, distract. And there's all sorts of these tactics, in my opinion, to really hide from the truth. And Matt is very, very good at not allowing that. And, you know, sometimes he ends up just hanging up on people because they're just not uh, being a good faith debatee. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, that, that might seem kind of harsh, but uh, like a harsh thing to do to, to people. But I, I do think he is kind of one of the more, uh, what's the word, diplomatic people <laughs> within like the atheist uh, movement, you know, like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens who, who kind mm-hmm. of, who kind of have way less of a filter, way less, uh, way less tact about about trying to interact with people who are religious and and mm. kind of convince them. I, I think he says he he, he Matt has explicitly said that that people like Richard Dawkins don't don't account for the role of emotion enough in in debating with people. Mm. And I think also, I mean, I Matt Dillahunty is I think one of the only like big figures in the new atheist movement that. Had a past as an actual religious person, mm. as, as young as he was, and I think I think he actually I, I read that it was it was in the process of like trying to deepen his faith and and become a minister that he realized that that he he actually believed, um, or I guess aligned more with atheism because you don't really believe in atheism, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the human element of it, the the experience that having having been there, having known what that kind of environment is like what that can do to a person what it can do for a person and what it can do to a person this i think breeds a lot of empathy for people who even if they're coming from a 
uh, not in a good faith position that still, you know, he'll have a certain amount of uh, respect and candor up until a point, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I think he does a really good job sometimes. Like in this debate, especially, it really struck me how level he was, how non-antagonistic and how slow he was to rise to bait, Mm -hmm. which there was bait aplenty from Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yep, yep. So for those of you who don't know, we have also done an episode uh, talking about some of the ideas of Jordan Peterson. Trevor, do you want to talk a little bit about who he is? Sure. So he's, uh, he, he was a, or still is, I think, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He has also been pretty outspoken on social justice issues and kind of pushing back on what he sees as the excesses of the, of the people on the left, especially in, in universities and what, you know, what people would call cancel culture, that whole thing. And uh, he's been, he's been going through some health problems recently. So he's, he's been a little bit more out of the public eye, although I think he's kind of getting, getting back to it. He's kind of a really fascinating individual in, in my view, because he has some really cool ideas and he thinks about some really, really cool topics that, you know, people just don't talk about other than, you know, he's really pushing the bar in terms of, uh, interesting and incisive inquiries into life you know yeah and and while i disagree with most of his conclusions i do think he is Mm well-intentioned like i think i don't think he he wishes harm on anyone i think he just he has his principles that he sticks to and kind of sees everything through the lens of those and maybe he is willing to change his mind about things in theory but i think i think he's just kind of misguided on 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 a lot of things Mm. but yeah that's that's interesting and and so that was one of the things i really appreciated about this conversation was that both of them had some really really good points and had a couple moments where they proved the other one wrong Mm -hmm. and i thought that was that was really fascinating and you know it's great to have that kind of a debate that actually challenges the participants to to change their mind on their preconceptions yeah yeah and and they they both i I feel like they're both in good faith and they both try to genuinely understand what the other person is saying and 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 all that all that stuff so would you generally say that the like the general focus of this whole debate was whether or not there is a god is it good that people believe in god or not right and i this kind of this kind of ties into something jordan peterson talks a lot about which is that religion is actually and and specifically i think he you know talks about judeo-christian values are way more fundamental to our system of morality than we give them credit for Mm. and and i think that that is one of the main reasons why he he says that that it's good that people believe in God is because it gives us this foundation of, of moral authority that helps to guide us. How do you feel about that idea? I mean, I, you know, (laughs) I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that we need religion to tell us how to 
live a good life. And I mean, and, and it, you have to separate religion and philosophy a little bit, I feel like, mm. because the, I mean, I, I'm sure the definition of religion is a very like widely discussed topic and something that goes very deep as far as like academic and scholarly research. But if I were, if I were just to define it now, I mean, I feel like religion is, is like the philosophy and the metaphysical beliefs all tied together, you know, like it's the philosophy of how you should behave in the world. And then also, this is what the way reality works, and you know, including conceptions of an afterlife or an omnipotent creator, mm. that kind of thing. And yeah, and I feel like that you can you can separate the philosophy about being a good person from the metaphysical beliefs. And then I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you know, the open question would be: Do you still call it the philosophical beliefs about what to do in the world, religion or not? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so so that was Matt's main idea, right? Is mm-hmm. that you can separate those things. You don't need to rely on religion in order to have a, a rooting in morality, and uh, that that religion is maybe even extra baggage that is no longer necessary. He 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 admits that religion has done things for our, our culture in the past. Um, has has served the purpose of uh, giving us a moral a moral ground, but that it maybe did so in an uh, inefficient and damaging way, and so that it is now obsolete. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of baggage, and there are just so many very very dated dated laws and 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 actively harmful things like. Um, you know, prohibiting homosexuality, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I would say there are definitely many, many progressive, progressive religious people who, who, who just don't, don't give any credence to those. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but, but then again, you know, there, there are many who, who do, and it's, yeah, it's an open question what the net benefit I think is. Kind of on the same point, I think Jordan Peterson had this point about art that he, he talks about artists and poets who think they're godless. Mm. And he, I think he makes the argument a lot, very similar to his argument about morality being based in Judeo-Christian values that, that a lot of artists and poets feel like they, they don't need God or re- religious conceptions. But in reality, that's that's kind of where it comes from, mm. which I, I, I don't agree with that at all. But I, there is, I do believe that art is one of the most spiritual things you can do or experience. Yeah, I mean, he kind of starts out by saying that the idea of God is something that most celebrity atheists don't really take seriously enough. Mm -hmm. And he had that nice, really dramatic moment where, like, Matt asks him, like, the first question, and he sits there, and I feel like he's counting under his breath, like, one, two up to like 10 and then he says well you know i don't think you guys are taking it seriously enough uh, <laughs> yeah i was watching it on like 1.5 speed and it was still like a really long <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's kind of an extension of the part where he was saying that matt is not an atheist mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what, what is he, why does he say that so okay so uh, this was a really, really interesting part of the debate, and I kind of wrote down their uh, points 
verbatim almost. Um, so to start with, Jordan Peterson said that, you know, like you said, art and poetry are, they need the divine basically in order to exist. And Matt asks him, are there no godless artists and poets? You know, like there are a lot of secularist artists out there, mm-hmm. you know, self, self, self-avowed. And Jordan says, oh, well, there's artists and poets who think they're godless. <laughs> um, and, and so then Matt goes, I don't believe in a god. You know, he's, he's mm-hmm. saying that he's an atheist. I don't believe in a god. And Jordan says, but you act like you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like. I feel like it's always a card you can play, you know, like, oh, you think you're doing this, but actually there's something deeper that you don't even realize is happening, which is that X, you know, mm-hmm. and, but, you and know, maybe that, maybe that can, that can definitely be true sometimes, but I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a cheap card to play, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit arrogant, you know, mm-hmm. to, to speak to someone who's been an avowed atheist as like their career for 40 years and say well but actually you're not an atheist you know (laughs) yeah well i feel like the definition of atheism is is another thing that gets debated a lot i Mm. think they get into this a little bit i forget i forget what exactly ends up getting said but but basically i think a lot of what people talk about around this is that atheist being atheist doesn't necessarily mean that you believe strongly that there is no god you just don't believe in things without evidence right yeah absolutely so yeah at the end uh in in response to this this back and forth which goes on and it's it's really interesting when they get into like implicit moral value and stuff um but uh later on at the end someone asks a question to jordan peterson you know if, if matt isn't an atheist in your eyes then what is a genuine atheist Mm -hmm. and peterson responds that the only answer he can give you is raskolnikov from crime and punishment yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) man yeah i I didn't even think think about the dostoevsky stuff as being like another thing that we talked about but yeah totally (laughs) i was like oh hey cool dostoevsky and one of the the, like the only dostoevsky novel i've actually read all the way through so Mm. Did we cool. do an episode on that? On crime and punishment? I don't think we did. I think we've just done we've just done the idiot and the uh brothers Karamazov, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so Reskolnikov, you know, he's the murderer who's the main character who kills an old lady who's this horrible, horrible person and with the intention of doing great good, but you know, he like doesn't have uh, some something goes, you know, goes wrong. I mean, he pulls it off, but then he's like all tormented and uh, post in post traumatic stress, and basically ends up giving himself in at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spoiler Jordan, alert! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jordan Peterson's contention is that, uh, or his interpretation of this is that. Raskolnikov broke some uh, sacred boundary. Mm-hmm. He, he crossed the line that implicitly should not be crossed and suffered the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Now, this is interesting because my own interpretation 
of that book from uh, from what it seemed to me that what Dostoevsky was trying to express with it is not so much that the boundary is inviolable, but that if there are really uber humans who can't do good, you know, for the greater good, doing bad things now uh, to create a better world, and who can actually pull off things like murder and 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 use that to catalyze a better world, that uh, they can do that. But that most people who think they are are not, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. So yeah, that, I mean it's it's the whole thing that they were also talking about about how no one no one thinks they're wrong, everyone thinks they're right. Yeah. <laughs> and what it what it feels like to be wrong is what it feels like to be right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that actually strikes me though. I uh, because if it's impossible to know whether or not you're right because because it feels the same then maybe this is an inviolable boundary right like, well uh what's an inviolable boundary killing someone yeah you know people talk about how it like changes you forever yeah yeah um yeah i never heard someone talk about ptsd coming from you know doing something that you can never really come back from you know mm. like i i always i always saw P- ptsd as something that you know it ha- it you get it because it's something that happened to you mm. yeah it's, it's something you did right? you know uh, but that that really kind of makes sense when you think about it right yeah just like the psychological complex that gets built up from that so anyway so matt goes on and says in response to this people have been saying they have this image in their head of what an atheist is and it's someone who would murder through rational rationalization and they would really do anything um and that that that's an image people carry around with them of what an atheist is and so the way that they justify not thinking ill of the the atheist sitting across from them is that oh well they're not really an atheist because an atheist is a murderer and this is where matt says atheist is just someone who does not believe in a god like you were saying irrespective of if they believe there is no god it's just someone who believes or who doesn't believe that there is a god and so uh <laughs> yeah, he kind of makes like this big moral stand like so stop you know stop saying that we're murderers yeah i mean they also they also have the conversation about whether whether the soviet union the soviet union under stalin was an atheist an atheist regime and dillon he says absolutely not i mean you know there was there was a lack of religion but there was no there were, i mean there was no humanism yeah, no, yeah, exactly. No humanism, humanism. I was going to say no moral compass, but yeah, no completely diverging from from what we would call secular humanism, um, which I don't really know how to define, honestly. But, um, I think, yeah. I, from what I understand, I think it's, I think it's, you know, a moral framework that just doesn't, doesn't include God or any supernatural mm-hmm. explanations for anything. Yeah, I have the humanist manifesto right here in the first stanza says humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism 
affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. I think, yeah, I, I, what I keep coming back to my brain when I think about this is this argument that we need religion to have any kind of morality. It, it just, I mean, and it seems like a stupid thing to say, but like, how hard is it? <laughs> Like, I mean, obviously there's all these edge cases like abortion and, you know, trolley problems and, and, and yes, like treat your neighbor as yourself is a very good starting point, but I don't think we need this, this, like all these, all these other machinations of, of <laughs> Christianity and, and other religions to, to kind of, you know, get to that one core truth, you know? Yeah, Sure. And of course, you know, you could argue that that fundamentalist Christianity has pushed us in the in the wrong direction on those edge cases like abortion. So, mm. yeah. So that was one of Jordan Peterson's first talking points uh, was that he was saying that atheists, specifically celebrity atheists, don't really pay enough attention to the more subtler points of religion and instead harp on specifically the fundamentalists who which are very clearly misguided in some cases um but uh are kind of a, a straw man if you will they're the the low-hanging fruit yeah i i, I, I definitely agree with that I think, mm -hmm. I think it's very true um, yeah and and not to get too tangential but I, I see that happening a lot of a lot of social debates is is the 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 two sides are, aren't necessarily arguing with the right people on the other side you know they're they're arguing mm -hmm. with the people who probably have the most the most easy to attack positions yeah. and the most extreme positions whereas the the productive conversation is going to happen probably if you if you if you target the people who are most moderate and most open to kind of differing viewpoints and and that kind of thing and where the, where the most i think the most like substantive debate is gonna is gonna happen one other, one other thing they were talking about around this whole issue of, of religion is is the 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 relationship of the two halves of the brain to that right, mm -hmm. yeah. and the right brain, which tends to be the like the non linguistic part in generally speaking in, in right handed people, uh, tends to be where things like narrative and metaphor are, and that also extends to I think re religious re religious ideas, which I think is I think is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, that the left hemisphere is more like the rote memorized patterns and so it 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 is its territory is the known and in contrast the right deals with the unknown. It's the interface with the chaotic, unpredictable. Mhm. Mm yeah, and I think also, I mean, like I mentioned, it's it's the non-linguistic part of the brain, and I think it's also. I mean, that, that's something people would say a lot about religious or spiritual experiences. They just, you know, can't be described. With mm. same same with psychedelic experiences, they just can't. Words words don't really do them justice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I I think that's again. I think you can kind of separate the the spiritual and the the metaphysical from the the morality part of it, and the, like the the more like moral philosophy part of it. Um, mm. Because yeah, the 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 metaphysical like nature of consciousness and the nature of the self and what it means to be human that is very much a like spiritual question that we should be wrestling with. But I think it it 
and in, in some ways it could tie into morality, right? I mean, recognizing that everyone is conscious and is having basically the same experiences as you are and that that experience is sacred. Like, I think that that can influence your morality, but the, the way that a lot of traditional religion ties those two things together, I think is, is not ideal because mm. it's saying that the higher reality, it's like, it's like a very explicit, uh, again, this is, this is kind of talking more about fundamentalist conceptions of, of religion, but, but it is very much this supreme being exists and will punish you eternally if you do not obey what these <laughs> laws tell you to do. Right. right. And I, I never, this is a, a good line that Dill Hunty had, but he said, he, he just said that, yeah, eternal punishment for finite crimes is in, inherently immoral. Like it just doesn't, that just doesn't track that that would be fair, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I guess you could say it depends on, on how bad the, the crime is, but um, I think in general. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, that really gets to the heart of things. Yeah, I, especially, if it, especially if it's something like having sex before marriage or, you know, something like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> burn in hell. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it because you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Okay, so when Jordan Peterson was harping on uh, Matt Delahunty for not being an atheist, um, and uh, in specific when they were talking about their moral grounding, and he was saying that Matt isn't an atheist because he takes some things for granted in his Mm -hmm. moral system. And, you know, he asked him, like, Matt says, you know, my moral sense is without any reference for a God, with to a God, um, and Peterson says, oh, but well, you regard Sam Harris as an implicitly valuable being. Otherwise, mm-hmm. when you're mad at him, you just throw him off the stage, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think, well, I mean, this 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 actually does kind of involve Sam Harris's uh, ideas because you know we talked about in one of our episodes about him that, that, you know, his idea of the moral landscape and that, that science can tell us things about morality. And I don't know, I've, I've gotten more and more attracted to that as an idea. Um, mm. because I, uh, I, and I just heard someone talk about this the, the other day. I can't remember who it was, but, but, you know, it kind of centers around this whole idea that was first put forward by, by this, uh, Scottish philosopher, David Hume, I think in like the 18th century, mm. um, about the distinction between, um, is statements and ought statements so you know is an example of an is statement would be human human beings experience pain mm. right that would be that it would be an is statement and then an ought statement would be we should try to minimize human pain mm-hmm. and as straightforward as that connection would seem to a lot of people according to hume and basically 
almost every philosopher since then you those there's not an actual connection between those two things mm. you can you have to you have to there's not like an inherent connection you you have to add the connection that we should avoid pain like you're not you're not getting that from the fact that humans experience pain right right and <laughs> so what i heard someone say the other day i wish i could remember who this was but um was that well i mean we did get odd from is because the earth was the way it was 4.5 billion years ago and well now here we are 4.5 billion years later talking about how things ought to be <laughs> okay i mean I, I don't think that point totally tracks but i've never heard someone say that before and it, it is kind of interesting to think about i mean hmm. um i mean the other thing is you know whatever you say about it at some point we're gonna have to decide because we're going to be inventing intelligent beings that are that are more pow- powerful than us and we want them to have the same we want them to be you know their values to be aligned with ours and it's going to have to be some moral system right yeah 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 so so here's another one of our heavy hitting uh topics that was covered in this debate you know artificial yeah. intelligence peterson brings up that uh people have been trying to make artificial intelligence for decades and we've tried it and tried it and if you have a rule-based system that it just doesn't work you know something's stagnant about it you can't get it to operate with what we would regard as intelligence um and so then he brings up machine learning and he says that machine learning is what it's doing doesn't seem easily decompostable to a set of rules and a map of their interactions he just says that the world just doesn't seem to work that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an open question. It could be that it works that way, but the rules are just so complicated that humans have no hope of understanding them or have no hope of understanding them in the near future. It's interesting, though, that it's unknown, right? Yeah. Yeah, and of course, I mean, uh, in the history of AI, I mean, people's first attempt was like, okay, let's just put all the knowledge into this computer and, and just give it some rules and tell it what to do. And uh, that, that's like the idea of an expert system, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just failed spectacularly because there's no way you can possibly explain everything to an AI. You have to you have to give it some way to continually learn and discover in the same way that a human does mm-hmm. over, you know, for humans, it's years and years. For a, for a neural network, it's, um, you know, it's, it's it could be days or weeks or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, this is interesting. I somehow have never thought about this before, but people will make the argument that, that, neural networks will never get us to general intelligence because they so obviously consume way more energy than the human brain. Mm. You know, I mean, the, the human brain is running on, I think like Watts or something. I, I probably off on that maybe, but it's, it's very little electrical power, right? Mm. It's not like it's consuming this huge amount of power, but that's over years, right? It's over years and years and years. Like what, well, how, how many, <laughs> how many years <laughs> of a human life do you have to, have a brain running for it to consume the same amount of energy that like GPT three does for the whole yeah, training. I have process. no idea. That's, that's an interesting yeah. point. I would guess it's probably still less than, than like GPT three, but yeah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely a lot more optimization to go. Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the main point is really interesting to me that, you know, maybe it's telling, maybe it's telling that, artificial intelligence using machine learning outperforms uh, programs written with a a set of rules, you know, that uh, maybe there's something inherent about 
the way we interface with the world because the world is unpredictable and ever changing that we need to be able to respond to that and you know if you are static and predefined then eventually the world is going to outpace you totally totally yeah i think yeah whatever ai systems absolutely need to be flexible you know they can't be brittle and and um fragile but i I think we're you know we see that even with with neural network based systems like i mean we still can't solve self-driving cars just because there's so many edge cases and we don't know what to do in you know all these really tricky situations and and so i think yeah the the inflexibility is is a problem even when you get to to neural networks and machine learning Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like i feel like there has to be some kind of third approach that we haven't we just haven't thought of yet or some combination Mm -hmm. or or something yeah, I mean, yeah, that that flexibility maybe it just doesn't go far enough. Maybe it's it's just uh, in its infancy, and if yeah. it is extended, then maybe that translates into what we would perceive as intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so amazing that that our brains have just been programmed over literally like billions of years. Like that's how long the programming took. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like literally billions of years. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little mind-blowing. And it all just works flawlessly. I mean, you know, relatively flawlessly. And <laughs> well, <miraculous>. I mean... <laughs> I I could think of some flaws. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, but it's, it's not like it just breaks because it encounters some situation that it's never seen before, you know? And it's not like we're constantly noticing these little, like, glitches in our in our consciousness or in our, I mean, you know, sometimes sure, but, but not like all the time. It's not like a rickety system. That's like constantly breaking and, and inflexible. It's like, it just works Mm. in, in, you know, 99% of cases, it just works completely flawlessly and beautifully and and (laughs) seamless. Yeah. Feet, feet of, of, I mean, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, the other side of that is that because, all the times when it doesn't work has resulted in, in that individual dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this is maybe true, but, <laughs> but I think you have a point regardless. Yeah. There's, there's something else. Like I, I would never, I would never proclaim intelligent design in terms of like, uh, there being an external intelligence that shaped the course of evolution. But, I think it's foolish to ignore the presence of intelligence and how that shapes the future of the species that possesses it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, could could one say that evolution itself is intelligent? Mm. <laughs> probably, I, prob- go, probably go not. On. <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, you know, a lot of AI people, like one of the big things they'll talk about is what is intelligence, right? Everyone mm. kind of has their own definition. And a lot of what people will say is, is problem solving, right? Or mm-hmm. flexible problem solving. And what evolution has solved is how to maximize the proliferation of genetic material. Mm. <laughs> like that is the problem that it has solved and it has <laughs> solved it through intelligence itself. Interesting. <laughs> hmm. maybe, maybe, okay, maybe it's fair to say that evolution is intelligence. But I don't think you can say evolution is intelligent because that implies a tangibility to it and it's an abstract idea. Uh, what do you mean by that? 
you know, evolution. You can't point to it on the street. You know, it's it's a thing that happens without without being a thing itself. You know, it's a process as opposed to uh, a presence. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's something to that. But yeah, that begs the question: can a can a process be intelligent? Like, does it have to be a being that's intelligent? <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> because intelligence itself is an abstract concept. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily need to be embodied. Whoa. Um. Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I'll, I'll have to keep thinking about that. <laughs> I love, I love, part of what I love about conversations like this is just you think of things that you would definitely not have thought of otherwise, mm, at least yes. not for, you know, a long time. So totally. Yeah. It's, it's that idea that the consciousness is the thing emerging between the two minds as opposed to anything in one or other mind well i think it could be within one mind but it's the it's the interaction of the mind with the environment i think or, or, I, don't, I don't know it, it could i mean there could be some brain in a vat or some <laughs> ai system that's just processing information and learning just a gigantic amount of things and figuring stuff out that is not interacting with the world so but i don't, I don't know think how that's it's, possible i don't think yeah. you can have interaction with the world I don't think you have, can have consciousness without interaction with the world. I think the two are fundamentally linked. Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Wow, we're really down the rabbit hole. On this one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good. This is not totally totally off topic. So no, it's actually spot on yeah. topic yeah. <laughs> because someone asked Peterson at the end of this really fascinating question. He uh, and and this is cool that or I mean not cool but just f- funny that. Peterson managed to answer this question without revealing whether or not he actually believes in a God because mm-hmm. like who knows, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the question was if humanity ceases to exist, does God also? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you define God the way I would, if I had to define God, it's just, which is just the entirety of the universe, then yes, the entirety of the universe <laughs> to continues to exist when humans are gone. But yeah, it depends mm. how you define God. Well, so, so what Peterson says is that he says, he, I think he says, and I quote, I think reality is an interaction between consciousness and the material substrate itself. So when you destroy consciousness, you destroy reality. And what that leaves behind, I don't really understand. Wait, so, uh, so he said reality is the interaction between consciousness and the material substrate. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it gets to the the idea that yeah, maybe there is something out there that's separate from consciousness, but we can't, we fundamentally can't know for sure. Mm. Right? We could just be brains and bats. I, I, I don't know. I think there's a certain. I, I, this this is something we've talked about before, right? Like, if you know that you exist and that you are conscious, how can you know that the things around you are also conscious? And to me, there's a way to derive that knowledge from the first principle that the only thing that you can know exists is consciousness and that if you kind of have to extend that to everything else and see everything else outside of you well it is a product of consciousness as well Mm -hmm. and that's how you get the empathy the understanding of other human beings and other entities as 
implicitly valuable, you know, because you can see them as being that same, that same implicitly valuable thing that you are. Yeah. I saw this article go by where someone was arguing that everything is conscious and that humans just have meta consciousness, which is that we're aware of our own consciousness and we can mm. reflect on it, mm-hmm. which I think is super interesting because it kind of, I mean, I mean, I, but it might just be a redefinition of words because then you could just say by what you mean by conscious is just that it exists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's basically just, is it like something to be a rock? Yes. But the rock just can't reflect on that. It, it's like something to be a rock, you know? Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense to me. <laughs> something yeah. about that feels very intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Future, <laughs> future episode. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what if we hit, uh, we hit, AI, uh, Dostoevsky, atheism, and the we hit uh, the intellectual dark web. Um, we hit panpsychism, and we have yet to hit, but we will hit psychedelics. Yeah, that was that was the last thing left on my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so they talk about how how most people when they take psychedelics, if it goes well, they have what they would describe as a spiritual experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, that's something I think a lot about with, with regards to psychedelics is, is, you know, how, how much can we trust that that is showing us something real? Um, I mean, it's definitely showing us something about how the brain works, but as far as what the actual, you know, metaphysical nature of reality is, I, I don't know if we can trust it as much, mm-hmm. but, yeah, it's definitely definitely playing with the same parts of our brain of our brain as as religion and you know other spiritual experiences outside of religion or psychedelics uh, are touching. And if that's the case, then maybe there's something to them. You know, if if they can speak to other experiences outside of itself, then can't we say that they're showing us real real insight? Yeah, I mean, and you know, you can have, you can totally have, have very useful realizations from, from those experiences that are very helpful. But, um, I think, yeah, I think, I think I get what you're saying in, in what you're saying in some sense, it has, it has to be, it has to be true, mm-hmm. uh, true in quotation marks because it, it maps on to a very meaningful, um, you know, part of our lives. And, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I would probably put DMT in a wholly different category because it's, <laughs> it's, it exists in our brain already and is associated with near death experiences and, and dreaming and mm. that being kind of in the same territory as other psychedelics, if to a, you know, way more, by more gigantic degree. Um, I think that does kind of make it more likely that they are showing us other psychedelics are showing some, something to us. That's, that's more, uh, yeah, more grounded in reality. Interesting. Yeah, so so Peterson brought up psychedelics because he says that you can, in a laboratory, recreate what people will describe as a mystical experience and that this will have lasting impact on their lives, you know, for forever, basically, mm-hmm. and that you can recreate this and... It, so he he posits that this is actually proof that uh, people are having mystical experiences, and Dillahunty says that that's not actually you don't know that it's a, a mis- 
mystical experience because that's just the language that the people in the culture have to describe this kind of experience. And if they, if we had a different language around it, then people would use those different words. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And our, our, and psychedelics have, I think they're, they're just now starting to kind of enter into the mainstream, maybe not the mainstream awareness, but like the mainstream acceptance, right? Because we had mm. kind of this backlash to them in the sixties and seventies mm. when they, you know, when they were, they were first, when they first were discovered, they were, they were legal. And then they got, uh, you know, they got outlawed because of, of so many kind of horrific high profile incidents that happened and the research all got shut down. And now we're seeing kind of a second wave of research happening and a lot of promise and mm. people seem to, have more respect for them i think you know probably because there's more infrastructure around it on the internet kind of giving people harm reduction mm -hmm. advice and and you have know, you have things like airwood and and a lot a lot of uh big youtube channels that that kind of spread awareness about what what the right approach to them should be mm -hmm. and so yeah maybe we will see see it kind of percolate more into some kind of mainstream mainstream outlook on on all this kind of spiritual stuff yeah yeah interesting that the uh, language of psychedelics might change the way we regard what has hitherto been described as a myth mystical experience. And I guess mystical, the key here, the reason why it's relevant is that uh, it has been touted as being contrary to the natural world. You know, people who describe these mystical experiences you know, if, if they put it in terms of like seeing God and that God exists with outside the natural world, then that they will construe that as proof of God. And Dillahunty makes the point that, like I was saying, it's just uh, that's the language that they have available to them. And he uses the example of people who have reported that they'd been abducted by aliens and up until the movie 2001 Space Odyssey came out, the experiences reported were all vastly different, the descriptions of what the aliens were like. And then mm -hmm. when the movie came out, from that point onward, all of the self-reported uh, alien abductees described their captors as, you know, that very specific skinny with the big head and gray and big black eyes, you know. Yeah, I think he was talking about uh, close encounters of a third kind, which I oh. actually haven't haven't seen yet. Because I don't think are there aliens like that in two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. I want to say oh. there are, but uh, I think you're right that it would be close yeah. encounters. But yeah, yeah, thanks yeah. for the correction. I haven't seen close encounters, but um, yeah, <laughs> he also mentions <laughs> the last thing he says is this story about being on acid and seeing like the woodwork. Uh, form into this like superhero strawberry that like flies Super around strawberry. his head. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so so like I said, I mean, not everything psychedelics shows us is is true or sometimes it's just our brain making the, the noise of our brain being amplified or, or in, the same, in, the same, in the same way that things happen in, in dreams. It's kind of your brain processing whatever's in there mm. and some of that, the result of some of that will just be nonsense and just and maybe it's entertaining nonsense, but or entertaining isn't the right word. Maybe it'll be uh, insightful, funny nonsense, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> entertaining. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I yeah. I mean, you're totally right. You're totally right. Um, I think I think the 
the term true is an interesting one because you know maybe super strawberry is not true in some sense but in another another sense it is something you're perceiving and there's some meaning in that it's just uh takes a a mind that's not going to jump to interpreting things literally to say okay maybe that the meaning of super strawberry is not literally that there's this entity flying around that I because I saw it you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah I mean maybe maybe the lesson is that the reality isn't as as uh concrete as you might think it is (laughs) (laughs) yeah so one other thing I wanted to talk about is um you know, back in the part where Peterson was harping on Dilhunty for, you know, saying he d- does not believe in a god and that his moral stance is based in religion, whether he means for it to be or not. Um, and he's basically, he basically says, you know, he asks, like, do you, will you believe that Sam Harris has implicit value because he's another person? And uh, Dilhunty says, no, actually, I don't believe that. Um, mm-hmm. and they keep talking about throwing him off the stage. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she has, he says, no, I don't believe that he has implicit value, but he puts forward this selfish, he calls it a selfish, but stable basis for mora- for secular morality and that that's okay. And what it is, is basically that he, he uh, believes Sam Harris is implicit or that Matt believes Sam Harris is implicitly valuable and Matt says well no because if I were to throw I, I he says no because I wouldn't want to be thrown off the stage myself and you know so I can see that there's things that I wouldn't want to have happen to me and so I'm going to not do those things to other people in the hopes of cultivating a society that that does that yeah yeah and, and someone who's uh, christian or otherwise religious you know would say oh that's just love your neighbor as yourself dress up in new clothes right i, I mean i think that's not just specific to christianity i think that that has shown up you know across the world because it's a pretty it's a pretty self-apparent thing to say if you're mm-hmm. if you're a human and one of our, our things things that make us unique is we can reflect on being conscious ourselves and and uh, conclude that other people must be having the same kind of experience, and we, so we should treat them that way. Um, yeah, and, interesting. Yeah, and he, I think he, I don't know if it was that same part, but uh, Dylan Hunty also talks about e- even if even if you're gonna kind of offload all your moral reasoning to religion, at the end of the day, it's still you who chooses to do that, right? You you still have to be the one to make the decision that that is the right morality. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no free lunch. You, you, you still have to be the one to, to construct it. Even if you know, I think someone asked at the end, like, what isn't religion useful for kind of collecting all this moral knowledge so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time? Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean that's also what books are for, <laughs> and and the internet. But but yeah, uh, but at the end of the day, you still have to make the judgment that this is the right system. You can't just, uh, it's got kind of, kind of, uh, Godel's incompleteness theorem, <laughs> you know, system, system can't prove its own completeness or validity. Whoa. That's a really good point. <laughs> Goddamn. 
but uh, so, so so they go on, and Peterson keeps you know saying, well, you 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 have preconceptions, you have these whatever you boil it down to, you can't just assume that any state, any world state, is better for you than another. If you are truly an atheist, you know, if you're truly skeptical about everything, I guess there's a little bit of conflating skepticism with atheism, as we talked about earlier. Atheism is just not believing in God, but, you know, skepticism is something that is often valued by atheists. So he says, you know, you're not truly being skeptical because at a certain point you're just taking things for granted. You're taking for granted, for, for example... Uh, well, well, Matt says, you know, I'm not taking things for granted. There are places you can start that are stable. You know, you could start with, for example, death is better than life. And he says, you can do that, but it doesn't get you very far because if you're dead, you're, you stop existing. So there's no well-being to to be, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that kind of that kind of ties into the whole antinatalism idea that it's it would have been better not to have been. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, it's like the the, the people who have not believed that are the people who have gone on to pass their genes. So yep. that's that's why yep. we value existing as opposed to not. You know, yep. just because we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Totally, yeah, and and so, so he goes on because because you know he, he was gonna Peterson makes that point basically, and then Matt was gonna respond, you know, well you could say life life is preferable to death, but he kind of amends it. He says life is generally preferable to death, and there are maybe exceptions, and so this is sort of his starting point, right? Yeah, and Peterson says you can't have that as a starting point if you're truly skeptical how do you, how can you take that for granted yeah i mean you have you have to you have to base you have to base your morality on something and uh you know peterson is making the case that this this uh taking something for granted is the same as faith yeah what do you think about that <laughs> i mean uh I mean, again, you have to base your morality on something. You, you can't just get get out. I mean, sure, you could just sit at a cave and not pay attention to the rest of the world and, you know, just come up with whatever you want. But it, I don't know. I mean, are, again, if you're basing things on the fundamental idea that humans experience pain and suffering and you should try to reduce that pain and suffering and have people flourish and be happy as much as they can and be fulfilled, then, like, I don't, Again, I don't see a better thing to base things on, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, then you get into the whole problem of utilitarian utilitarianism and how can you actually quantify that, mm. and who who gets to quantify that? But I think that is that is the place you have to start. I don't, I don't, and, you know, that's a that's kind of an absolutist statement. But mm. yeah, having thought about it a bunch, I think I think that is kind of the the, the best way to go. That's and so that, interesting because I know we've <laughs> talked about this before. And like what you said, you know, reducing pain is one of those, mm-hmm. well, you know, we depends on how you define it, right? Like I, I'm totally not on board with that. If it's, you know, like there's a lot of good pain, a lot of pain comes from a lot of good things. Growth induces pain. Um, and so, yeah, you, mean, you can get more do you mean pain induces growth or growth induces pain. I meant, I meant or growth both, induces both, pain. Both. You, you can't grow typically without going through pain. 
Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, we shouldn't all be on like morphine drips, just not doing anything all day because that reduces our pain. Right. Mm. So yeah, totally. (laughs) And so it's complicated, right? Like that's the thing is like, you could start with these presuppositions, but already we're running into, you know, cases where it doesn't hold up. And, uh, so Matt's response to this was that the, the secular grounds for morality is to start with anything, anything at all, and see how it holds up and then revise it based on what you've learned, what your experiences of life are, so that you can gain a more nuanced and more moral framework. Yeah, and I think, yeah, part of part of developing a morality that's not based on any religion is being open to criticism and open to debate, right? Because that that is that is a lot of what makes morality based on a religion potentially harmful is that there's so much dogma wrapped up in it that that a lot of people will not be willing to to budge an inch. And again, there are lots of progressive religious people who are willing to debate and change their their opinions, but uh, religion by nature, a lot of the way a lot of people approach it kind of prohibits people from having that flexible outlook, you know? Right. And like if you use uh, Christianity, for example, I mean, there's parts in the Bible that we would say today based on our own understanding of morality are abhorrent. And you can't really get around that. You know, if you are a Christian, I mean, there's a million ways to interpret being a Christian, a million different way, things that that means for different people. And, you know, of course, a lot of them are very positive. But at the end of the day, those words are in that book. And if you take that book as being Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, you know, it says, kill the gays. It says, uh, what women are worth two thirds of a man. It says all sorts of horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. And again, a lot of more progressive Christians would acknowledge that the Bible was written by a bunch of people who don't know the names of over a long amount of time. And it's not the word of God. Yes. Um, So yeah, it's, it's all in the, the um, interpretation. I think part of what has made it such a, a long lasting document is just, it's so rich for interpretation, you know, Mm. there are so many there are so many possible interpretations and people have been debating it for you know 2000 years in christianity um Mm. and yeah i think that that contributes to how how long lived it's been very very interesting compilation of historical texts and uh ideas i guess moral ideas some of which Mm. are like ridiculous and stupid and some of them are are, you know they make you think Mm mm-hmm yeah well that was that was uh that was good was it good for you too i'm glad yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i got to a sort of a a, came came to a head there (laughs) (laughs) join us next time on post